Graphic Nature acknowledges the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. We also extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. How a particular tale can come to life in the mind of a reader is endlessly fascinating to me. We have found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents them. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. Will be mine. Welcome to Graphic Nature, a podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers and people behind the printed pages and digital screens, pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. On this episode, we're joined by Gary Chaloner, comics creator and founder of the Ledger Awards. Gary, thank you very much for being on the show. Welcome. Hi, Zoran. Uh, absolute pleasure to be here. It's 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 absolutely my pleasure to have you on. I've heard so many great things about you from various creators, particularly during the course of this this show being a podcast. And I've obviously I've seen your work uh, over the years, but it's finally it's it's actually good to finally speak to you proper and um, get an insight into your career as a professional creator, a comics writer, and artist um, for what is it the last what is it. Uh, four uh, decades? Long, too long. Let's, but <laughs> next question. First question. Fire away. <laughs> well, uh, how about we just start with uh, what what drew you to comics? Tell me about your your orbit uh, around comics and how you got near and nearer to them. Oh uh, yes. Well, that's uh, long ago. Once upon a time, there was a young lad who uh, his older brother used to read comics. Uh, this is back in the uh, you know, 70s, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And uh, my older brother would bring home a lot of, he had very good taste. So we brought into the house uh, a lot of great uh, Marvel comics in particular. Um, you know, Master of Kung Fu, Black Panther, you know, Paul Galassi comics, Barry Smith comics. Uh, that, that kind of uh, timing in Marvel was uh, very creative. And there was a, a new breed of comic book writer and artist coming through. And I was just at the right age. I was still at school, but I was just at the right age to be bitten by the bug severely. So, you know, I would start reading those comics that my brother would bring into the house and start following those titles myself. He grew out of comics, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah. And there was, uh, I was always a, uh, you know, creative person, even as a young tyke, I would, and I, and I think this might be common to um, a lot of creators and their origin stories is uh, that I would get things like old Disney comics and cut them up and rearrange the panels and glue them into an exercise book to create new stories and paths that the characters and the panels were you know, interacting with each other. So I would I would remember doing that as a as a kid before the the uh, the teenage years where I got hooked on Marvel comics. Uh, but the decision was always there to get into some sort of 
you know, art form, comic-y art form. But I didn't know at that stage that, uh, you know, Australia in the 70s didn't have that much of a publishing scene going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, it turned into uh, a bit of an adventure, not only doing the creative stuff, doing the, the writing and drawing or whatever, you know, puerile <laughs> idea I, I had at the time when I was 11, 12 and 13, but uh, then realising that there wasn't much to, to, there wasn't any place to go with it. The uh, the newspaper uh, Sunday strips and the daily strips so uh, seemed impossible to get into. Uh, you know, the, the professional scene was, you know, I was still too young to really crack that. So, and that's actually where, as I was getting a little bit older, I stumbled onto the work of, uh, you know, Peter Ledger and a few of the other cartoonists like John Dixon, who were doing, who was doing Airhawk at the time as well. And so I was quite um, affected and influenced by the local strips that were appearing in the newspapers, but never thought for a second that I'd be able to pitch something to a newspaper or be of a good enough standard to be accepted. But there was always that, uh, you know, forward momentum that it can be done. There are Australians out there getting published. And as the years roll by, you know, into the 80s, I eventually uh, was quite determined to to get some comic books of my own published. And I knew that there were, you know, one or two other people producing works at the time. And uh, that pushed me forward towards eventually meeting Tad, who was doing the Dark Nebula at the time, and that all rolled into meeting other creators uh, and Cyclone Cyclone Comics kind of developed from that. So it was uh, there was always a forward momentum there, and uh, I always knew that I wanted to get into comics in some way, shape, or form, but just in the early days it seemed that I was just in the wrong country. But yeah, as, right. as it turned out, uh, there were other people of like minds that I was lucky enough to find, and, uh, you know, the journey began that way. So before before Cyclone, and, and you mentioned Tad and, and a couple of other creators, what was that period like? You know, I assume, much like you, you describe, it was it was kind of tough and there weren't really, you really didn't have eyes on anybody else doing it until later on. But for you, the decision to go, hang on a second, I'm actually going to, I'm going to make this into something that I'm going to be doing and I want to do it professionally. Um, what got you over the line from reading to I'm actually now going to actively go and try and create something. Uh, uh, the thought process, I, I don't think, actually was like that. There was just always a, a natural determination that, that something was going to happen, whether it was in Australia or whether I would pitch my stuff overseas. There was just a, a drive there that, uh, or a stupidity there <laughs> that, uh, that this is what I wanted to do. And uh, it was quite satisfying to learn that, the timing was right for one or two other people that thought the same way as well. So, you know, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because if you did look around the comic scene at the time, it was, it was very dry. There was very few things uh, being published in the, the mid to late seventies. There was stuff being done, but it was hard to find. And mm-hmm. uh, at the time it wasn't necessarily the kind of stuff that I was interested in anyway. You could probably find, you know, some low print run underground comics. There was some stuff being done in Melbourne, uh, but being a, a Sydney cider, you know, I, I I wasn't bumping into this stuff. Yeah, right. So the the world of Australian comics was uh, a very hard one to to access because there was so little going on. And so what I found solace in or, or um, inspiration in was going to the comic shops and being exposed to seeing overseas imports and underground comics. Uh, not necessarily the Robert Crumb style underground comics, 
but mm -hmm. the alternative press that were starting to do uh, you know, science fiction stories and alternative superhero stories and things like that. Uh, yeah, right. like Richard Corbin comes to oh, yeah. mind. Uh, and that that generation of artists, those underground artists that eventually started doing work for heavy metal and uh, the bigger American companies, but they all started in a, a black and white magazine underground kind of way. And that sort of kicked me along as well. And uh, in fact, I think it was uh, talking to one of the um, comic shop owners, not comic shop owners at the time, Steve Smith, he actually owned a secondhand bookstore that sold comics and he got imports from overseas. And he had a place at Bondi Junction in Sydney that I used to go to quite often. And um, he was one of the people that I had great conversations with. And he was also able to put me in touch with other people that eventually led to uh, meeting Tad and uh, things snowballed from there. Right. And so, and so Tad was uh, another cyclone. Comic uh, yeah, he produced a comic called The Dark Nebula and he had produced the first issue that was a 64 page uh, self-contained origin story that when I first met him, I went around to his place and his book was at the printers and all the artwork uh, being shot to Neg was at the printers at the time. So he had very little to show me, but uh, he was he was talking a good game and he was describing everything, but he had very little to show because this was pre-internet and pre-digital scans and pre-having things stored yeah. on your computer or anything like that. It was all very, very old school. And, uh, you know, Tad had his oversized originals that he had uh, dropped off to the printer to get negs shot so that plates could be made so that this thing could be you know printed mm -hmm. and uh so i you know i kept in touch with tad and he eventually did bring back uh, all the artwork and i got to see how it was done you know like in, in how holding a piece of original art in my hands and seeing the uh the reality of how uh, uh, a piece of artwork was constructed which i knew about but there's a whole different kettle of fish when you see a piece of production art in your hands and you see the it really and you is. see uh, the the ink mark and the the way the individual artists have actually you know approached a page with tools you know with pens and nibs and ink and uh, you learn so much so there was a steep learning curve there as well both uh, before i met tad uh, but then as he was producing his book he was also uh, informing me on um you know his experiences and so i got um you know i was lucky enough to to learn uh from his mistakes and from his successes as well uh, so when Cyclone was developed, it was a no-brainer to sort of uh, work with Tad, uh, in, including the Dark Nebula in, in the titles that uh, you know I was putting together myself. And and so what was the genesis of Cyclone Comics? Was was it this particular this particular meet? And then you you guys just kind of went oh, okay, well let's let's do something together and we'll put it under a, a banner uh, and here we go. Yeah, off we go. yeah. Is that I, I, what happened? There was a natural progression of uh, meeting people, and as soon as you bond with them and you see that you have a lot in common, that you sort of say, hey, why don't we do this together? So there was always an idea from my point of view with my characters that I wanted to get something published, and it just seemed easier having a, uh, a, a, com a compadre, a, 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 a mate to be able to develop stuff with as well. So uh, we decided to, uh, I always had in mind mm -hmm. a, uh, a, a multi-series anthology that, you know, I was probably doing all the stories, but then it seemed quite natural to bring Tad in, have his character uh, appear in the comic as well. So that automatically means that there was two series in the book so it wasn't a, a solo book anymore it became a mini anthology of two and then 
I met other artists mm -hmm. uh, in the early days that uh, were supplying short stories. So it, it immediately developed into an anthology concept moving forward from the very early days, purely because that you, you, I didn't want to necessarily do anything alone and I was learning lots from all these new people that I was meeting and friendships were being developed as well. And so there was a, a synergy that was developing there that once this concept of a, an anthology started, it was uh, very hard to, to shake off. Not that I wanted to shake it off, but it, it developed on its own organically and very quickly. And now you've been, I mean, you have been a professional comics creator for, for quite a while. Once you had Cyclone working, how long was it until you got, you started getting you know, interest from other places rather than just working for Cyclone? Because you've done a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Cyclone, um, let's see, 85, we got really serious with the Cyclone stuff. Uh, and by 89, so it was like a three or four year period, started to get offers for reprinting of the Australian material, the Jackaroo material overseas. And then from there, started to get a profile over in overseas and approached by American creators and American publishers to do different things. And it sort of uh, took off from there as well. So uh, it was very much a case of the Australian material being strong enough to get the uh, American people involved to get in touch. I think uh, the first actual connection with an American publisher was an introduction by one of the Cyclone artists who actually moved over to the States or moved back to the States, Shay Anton Penser. He had some involvement with uh, the, the crowd that uh, turned into Malibu Graphics and uh, he was showing some of his stuff and showed some of my stuff as well because it was all in the same Cyclone comic and they said, oh, who's this guy? And uh, Shay gave them my contact details and they got in touch and uh, said that they were interested in reprinting the Jackaroo material and it uh, and it went from there. So, yeah, it was very much a case of uh, word of mouth, but the Cyclone stuff was strong enough to push me over the line as far as you know, quality and uh, having professionals in the States uh, being interested enough to, to get me involved. What, what stuff did you work on for Malibu? Uh, well, they reprinted the, the Jackaroo material that I had done in Australia. Okay. And then I produced some fresh original material that continued the story on for the American market. So I did three issues of the Jackaroo. And then the Malibu guys, they had several imprints. They had Eternity, they had Adventure, they had a few other brands underneath the one Malibu graphics title. So they also had... Did they have Eternity? I didn't realise yeah, that. Yeah, they, they had the yeah. Planet of the Apes licence as, as well. So they uh, once the, the, the Jackaroo over there last about three issues and then the sales weren't going that well over there. So they said, we still really love your stuff. Let's morph your, your stuff into an anthology. So there was going to be another anthology that was an Australian-based thing that sort of fell through. Uh, in the development stages that was going to continue the Jackaroo story. Mm -hmm. But then they said, uh, yeah, let's let's not do that. What else would you like to do? And I said, well, what else have you got? And uh, they had the Planet of the Apes license. So I said, hey, I'd love to do a, a Planet of the Apes miniseries that isn't really tied into the continuity that much so that I can do what I want. And uh, so I wrote and drew four issues of Urchak's Folly for Adventure Comics, which is an imprint of Malibu. And uh, I got Dylan Naylor from uh, Melbourne to help with the inking of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Greg Gates came on board, another Melbourne artist, for the last couple of issues as well. So that was quite a lot of fun putting that together. And at the same time that that was happening, 
I was um, contacted by Stephen Jewell, an English writer or a Kiwi writer living in England, and he had a, uh, a property called the Olympians that he'd uh, sold to Epic Comics, uh, the imprint of Marvel. Wow. And uh, he was looking for an artist because the the one that uh, Marvel had put forward had fallen through for whatever reason. So he said, hey, I know an artist. He got in touch with me and I ended up getting signed on for the Olympians for a couple of issues. And it steamrolled from there. Um, At that stage in Australia, we were starting to get um, American creators coming down to do uh, comic book signings, uh, that independent comic book uh, you know, first comics and Pacific comics and all those publishers were starting to uh, get quite a profile. So the creators involved, Mike Grell and Mike Barron and people like that were coming down to promote their stuff and do signings. So, um, you know, I would get to meet them as well with some of the Cyclone guys. And so contacts were made that way where we would, you know, appear in some American comics or they'd get me to do a fill-in for the Badger for a, an issue. And you'd get different, you know, options and opportunities based on the friendships developed in the industry as well. Mm-hmm. It uh, does not surprise me at all, Gary, <laughs> at all. <laughs> wow, that's, geez, and that's still, that's still what, early, that's the late 80s, uh, early 90s. Yeah, we're sort of stumbling into the early 90s now, by which stage I had... Uh, wound down Cyclone Phase 1 to a certain extent, and I moved... That was my next question. Yeah, uh, moved from Sydney to WA, settled down over there. But once I got over there, I met Ashley Wood uh, and Ben Templesmith and uh, the Gestalt Comics guys, the whole swag of uh, West Coast creators, and entered a um, you know another phase of you know publishing and creativity over that side of the country. So I was over there for um, quite a while and published... Uh, four issues of Cyclone uh, Comics Quarterly. And uh, that was uh, our return to doing the Cyclone material. And that project rolled into an opportunity to do work for Dark Horse, an Australian anthology called Dark Horse Down Under, which um, Mike Richardson gave the green light for. Mike Richardson was the Dark Horse Comics publisher. And he had come down for a convention that I was, that I went to in Sydney, one of the Ozcons. Mm -hmm. And he saw the the depth and breadth of uh, new talent down here that he hadn't heard of before and he could see the potential of putting together an anthology title to sort of introduce a lot of Australian talent to the American market. So, uh, you know, he offered me uh, six issues to coordinate the talent for the content for. So I went ahead and did all that. And uh, again, you know, times were tough over in the American market. He turned around and said, well, you know, the sales aren't going as strongly as we would like. So I have to cut these six issues down to three. Uh, can you tidy up the series any, uh, as best you can and get it over to us? So, you know, I had to, you know, make a few phone calls to people to say, hey, you know how I said you're in issue five? Well, sorry, you know, you, you're not. Uh, so I had to use up the material <laughs> that was completed and uh, wind up the series in, in three issues and not six. Yep. But again, it did open up um, you know, opportunities and uh, allowed uh, a character like uh, Morton Stone, the Undertaker character, to get some purchase over in the States. There was some new stuff released over there with Ashley's artwork. So that period was quite fruitful as well and just pushed things along through the mid-90s. The Cyclone Comics quarterly title was around 94, if I remember correctly, going into the Mm mid-90s. And uh, then after that, I think it was around that time that I ended up doing a uh, fill-in issue with Kurt Busiek Mm -hmm. on Power Company, which was a Batman versus Manhunter 
issue. It was a fill-in issue where it was just pretty much a, a fight scene for the whole for the whole book. So that, that was fun, just choreographing, uh, you know, two superheroes punching each other across a city. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Yeah, you know, that was a lot of fun. And my relationship with Kurt is such that uh, further down the track, uh, he asked me to do a Astro City fill-in issue as well, featuring some Australian characters that I designed and uh, he wrote up a, a a fun single issue for me to draw as well wow so yeah so that's that's that which sort of takes us through to the uh mid to late 90s into the the 2000s <laughs> yeah um yeah <laughs> i was gonna say yeah so yeah it, it just uh, stumbles along you know life goes on and stumbles from one chaotic chapter of your life to another but the the the, the product still keeps on getting out there and your career keeps on stumbling along and more pages add up on the shelf so you know it's all part of being around for <laughs> as long as i have i suppose while you were while you were doing all this stuff for all these different companies and all the anthologies and all that kind of stuff were you actually working was it a side gig or were you 100 percent focused on these projects the uh it depends on the project i suppose you know but there were chunks of my life where i was doing it full-time when it was required to be full-time like uh, olympians i was doing it full-time um, you know, Astro City and Power Company, that was a full-time gig. Uh, it, it really, it, it's, it depends on the stage of my life that I was at, you know, being a, uh, a new husband or a new father, there were financial responsibilities and decisions you had to make to keep the money coming in. Uh, I was a trained yeah. uh, graphic designer as well. So I've always run a graphic design business in the background. But, uh, you know, my first love has always been comics. So whenever I felt the need to mm -hmm. set that aside and go full throttle on the, the comic side of my life, I was able to do that. So oh, uh, I've been sort of both. I, I've had full-time employment and I've done comics on the side and I've had it the other way around where I've been uh, a full-time comic book writer and artist and done a few commercial jobs on the side. Uh, so, yeah, it really depends. But that's the, the vagaries of of comic life, I suppose, and being a freelancer. What were, the, what were the deadlines like versus what they would be now, I suppose? I mean, back then, it would have been a lot harder getting pages through to to particularly international companies. Like how, how would that work? Were you scanning or were you sending the pages? There was all original art, uh, pencil and ink on board, and you'd FedEx the parcels over. Right. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, a couple of days, two, three days turnaround to get from wherever I was, whether it was Perth or Sydney, to New York primarily or LA. So you just have to work in that uh, into, into the deadline. Uh, you know, many late night calls with editors and fax machines yeah, right. going while you're sleeping, you'd wake up and there'd be a, you know, a bevy of corrections coming out of the fax <laughs> machine and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So old, old, old technology My uh, still did the job at the time as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was more concerned about how you were working deadlines with, with like just what you described, because I imagine these days when you're, if you're, you know, for some of the crew that are working for international companies now, it's literally just a matter of scanning and sending it off via uh, email yeah 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 whereas like like much like you described i thought they would have had to allocate time for for shipping and all sorts of stuff and if it got lost you'd be screwed there was um when i was doing the badger uh badger number 58 i think there was uh the deadline for that was bringing the artwork with me to go to san diego to deliver the artwork to the editor 
at the convention that's held there each year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember the, the couple of nights before getting on a plane that I was just, I was pretty far behind and I had a, a friend come around. I was living in Chippendale in Sydney at the time and uh, he'd come around and he was helping me out as, as best he could doing background penciling and things like that. And I was doing all the main stuff, but uh, it was just that the math wasn't working. You know, I had to, I had this air, airplane ticket booked. I had San Diego to, to get to, but I still had so many pages that weren't anywhere near finished yet. So I made the decision to do, you know, work throughs through the night and to get some no-dos happening. And, you know, like the night before having to get onto a plane <laughs> to uh, LA and then down to San Diego, and I, I was no-dozed up the wazoo and I was just hallucinating badly and there were hand-sized cockroaches crawling up the wall and uh, in the studio and there was all these, you know, hallucinations happening and I'm, I'm still hunched <laughs> over this board going, I've got three more pages to do before I get on a flight in so many hours. So, yeah, it was that was pretty crazy. But uh, it got done. It got done. <laughs> that's I think that's by far now the my favorite story I've heard in a long time of uh, of uh, deadlines. That's unreal. That's unreal. Yeah, and, and sadly, I don't think it's unusual having this uh, pre-convention flight, you know, deadline where you, where these art poor artists have to work through the night to try and get stuff done. And to top it off, when I eventually got over there and presented the artwork, the editor took the art and took me to a. a a cafe and and the floor of the convention there is all open plan so you get people walking around you hundreds of people walking around you and he was looking through this parcel that i delivered to him and he started editing the thing in front of everyone like i was um you know submitting new artwork yet he was actually doing oh this panel needs a bit of a rework here and if you can make that face a little bit larger and uh he was giving me all this new work to do and i was going i thought i, I thought i was done i thought i was on holidays and so I had to, over the next couple of days, take all this work, go back to my hotel room and rework, you know, a good half a dozen or so pages to his satisfaction. So that's the comic biz for you. Jesus. Yeah. Well, I have heard, I've heard stories from some creators uh, who, you know, irrespective of what the technology can do, uh, are still doing the, uh, still yep. doing the work throughs, working all day, yep. drawing all night. Uh, just to get in on time, uh, I just find it remarkable. And on some respects, I it's it's a thing of admiration for me. But on the other hand, I just scratch my head and go, "Why would you do such a thankless job?" In, indeed, and the modern art these days is getting so um, uh, detailed and you know photo referenced and cinematic that it's only gotten worse. Uh, I would imagine trying to get the level of, of artwork that is required for Marvel or DC these days, uh, have that standard maintained. You know, I'm quite lucky, I think, that I've got a, in inverted commas, cartoony kind of style, so I can uh, compromise and do tricks that I think a lot of artists who have a more realistic style uh, can't get away with. Mm. But, uh, yeah, modern comics. I, I don't know whether these days, that whether I'd, my style would actually fly with you know, Marvel or DC necessarily, because I've just developed a, um, a a style that's not that trendy, I suppose, as far as superhero comics goes these days. But I've, I've had my turn doing the the fun stuff. I've done my Batman and I've done Badger and I've done the Astro City. And uh, Astro City, I turned my hand as best I could to mm -hmm. the, the style that the series was known for. 
and I was lucky enough to have uh, have an excellent, excellent high-profile inker, Wade von Gordbadger, on that site, uh, on that uh, book, and he really did wonders on my stuff. Did you ever do any work for uh, any X titles for Marvel? <sighs> uh, yes, a, a little bit, a little. <laughs> The only reason I bring that up was because I interviewed Emmett Okuna and he mentions that in his formative years, he read a book that he only found out recently that it was you who did the art in that book. And it, and it was an X It was a book. Generation X book. Generation X annual, yes. Right, okay. And, uh, yeah, and that was the original gig was Ashley Woods. He was the penciler for that and uh, he was having huge deadline problems again you know like it's the old the old story and it was an it was an annual so it was an oversized book i think 48 pages and he was really struggling so uh he and i were really good mates at the time in perth and i said look you know i'll help with the inking so he started sending me through these pages and uh he got in touch with marvel to say hey look i'm i'm struggling but i've got a a friend here who's you know, here's, here's all of his career details. He's, he's good enough to ink my stuff. I'll start forwarding these pages through that Gary's doing and we'll be able to speed up a bit more. Uh, and Marvel basically, I, I did, I don't know, two or three pages of inks and then Marvel basically said, yes, everyone, stop what you're doing. We'll accept what you've done already, but we're going to take Ashley off the book and give it to someone else to complete. So uh, the, the two or three pages that I produced got published and Ashley's work in the first, I don't know, quarter, fifth of the book got published, but then it uh, got turned over to a whole swag of other artists to um, finish off the rest of the issue. So it turned out to be a little bit of a mess as far as artistic continuity. It's a shame. But, uh, you know, that was the story behind that. So, yes, I, I have done an X-Men book, but, boy, it was just, uh, you know, by accident, really. <laughs> did, that, did, that, did that hamper the relationship between Ashley and Marvel or yourself? Uh, oh, yeah, it, it did pretty much uh, cruel things between me and Ashley because there was just a lack of communication there as to what the expectations were with... Because what I would would have liked to have seen is a direct line of communication between me and the Marvel editors to sort of be able to help mm -hmm. streamline production. And, yeah, and right. they, they weren't open to that. So I was trying to get something organised with Marvel and Ashley was in the way and Marvel was in the way and you know, so it all, sort of, it all sort of fell apart. And, so, and, and those um, times Marvel were, were pretty ruthless. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a nice experience and it started off just trying to help someone out and it ended, uh, it ended badly. But, uh, you know, there you get that, swings and roundabouts. Shortly after that whole episode... Uh, I did a short story for Kitchen Sink Press for The Spirit, The New Adventures. Oh, yeah. And that rolled into me developing a long-distance relationship with Dennis Kitchen, who was the publisher and agent for Will Eisner. And through that, I got the, uh, the gig to do Will Eisner's John Law, a, a new adaptions of his old character from the 40s. Mm -hmm. So um, I started... I pitched to Will that uh, I do a webcomic of John Law to sort of test the waters because Will wasn't convinced that these old characters that he had discarded back in the, the late 40s had any merit these days. But he was quite interested in the uh, the internet and using the uh, the webcomic industry as it was uh, as a new forum for um, producing comics. 
so he said, okay, if you if you're the the, the master of the the web and you, you can format it properly and and publish it online, um, I'm happy to give it to go and and see where it develops. So that turned into a uh, a gig that uh, the the book got published by IDW. Uh, it started off as a web comic, and a couple of years later, IDW published a book of the uh, the uh, the Will Eisner John Law material. So I was very glad to be able to work with Will uh, on a a profile, uh, high profile project like that before he passed away. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was one of the last things he actually saw come off the press. And uh, Dennis was kind enough to say that, yeah, Will was actually quite, he, he's, he was pretty picky with other people working on his characters. And he said that he was quite happy with the material that I did for John Law. So I was pretty chuffed with that. That's great. I, I read, um, recently read uh, Will Eisner biography. Yeah, he was, he was like, just his story is, is, astounding all the everything that he did and there's no wonder that he's got awards listed after him and and um did, did you actually get to meet him at all in person or um, was... he, he came out as a guest to a convention in uh, early 86 it was at the opera house and that was the in january and that was the convention that launched cyclone as well so uh, we got to meet him there and hung out with him quite a lot uh, he didn't remember me many years later on when I got in touch with him about John Law. Um, so the, the two meetings don't correlate. But I had met him in 85 and then uh, developed these John Law stories with him uh, in 2002. So uh, I had met him and spent a fair bit of time with him. The, the convention at the Opera House was um, a catalyst or a meeting point for a lot of Sydney creators. Uh, whether they were there as punters, as young creators, or whether they were um, launching a comic there as well. So it was a pretty important uh, event. And to have Jim Storenko and Will Eisner there as guests and people like John Dixon were there as well. And uh, Franz Cantor was a local Australian artist who was you know, getting a lot of good good work published in, uh, I think, Penthouse, I think it was, his full-colour illustration work and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, it was... Uh, one of the, the first big glossy conventions in Australia that allowed people to uh, not only meet local creators and a, a lot of local product got launched, but it also allowed uh, for the first time to meet some overseas uh, superstars that uh, hadn't been out here before. So, yeah, it was a lot of firsts, that uh, convention. And speaking of, of promoting uh, Australian works or even acknowledging it, um, the ledgers were essentially created by you. You, you, you founded the Ledgers, which is uh, now now known as the yep, Comic yep, Arts. Yeah, there's been a bit of a name change. Of Australia. There has been a bit of a name change. And, and sadly, I did speak to Tim, uh, Tim McEwen uh, about uh, about the Ledgers, right. but it was right. shortly before the announcement of mm-hmm. the uh, C, the AAAs. And, and uh, <laughs> so I had to actually cut all that out of the interview because I, I didn't know if anything that we had talked about would actually be relevant because I think I saw a post from Bruce saying that he was going to change a whole bunch of stuff and it was like, well, you know, no one wants no one wants to know about how, you know, any of the old stuff was taken care of right. if all yeah. the new stuff is yeah. done completely different. Well, I think I think definitely Bruce has uh, big plans. These uh, The awards that were recently on a couple of weeks ago were quite successful, but they were impaired by COVID, so it was a, a live streaming thing uh, but Bruce had planned to and, and it was I suppose attached to the uh, to PCAF the Perth Comic Arts Festival uh, but he has grand plans yeah. for uh, what were the ledgers and that are now the Comic Arts Awards of Australia but we just have to wait and see whether 
COVID allows for, you know, see what happens within the next 12 months or so. I would, yeah, I, I'm really interested to see where he takes it and what he does with it. Um, in fact, I might even shoot him a line and find out if uh, he's, yeah, no, um, what he's thinking idea. about. Um, but um, yeah, the, the, the ledgers have to get to the next next stage. And I think both Tim and I, uh, after both of us spending you know, the best part of 10 years doing it, either me doing it or him doing it or us doing it together, 10 years was about enough. We didn't have much more petrol in the tank because it does take a fair bit to put these things on each year and we were both getting to the stage where we were really itching to get back to the creative side of things uh so since hanging up our ledgers hats uh we've both been getting back behind the drawing board again and and producing um original material which has been a real blast like just today i've been um, dealing with tim uh, he's been sending through some artwork for the cover of Adventure Illustrated number two, and it's just it's really exciting <laughs> working on with, with Tim uh, on stuff like that, and you know, sending each other files and uh, getting feedback. It's just like the old days again, and and yeah, working <laughs> took the with words the, out of the my mouth, yeah. gang, Dave and Glenn, and uh, uh, yeah, sort of like a 21st century version of that, really. So um, yeah, it's all good fun. But the ledges, the, the ledges were were. Um, were, were good value. I had the idea for them, uh, just thinking that the Australian scene had grown enough to be able to support an award system and to, that, that focused a light on uh, a calendar year's work, that the, the award recipients were one thing, but really the other important aspects of the awards was developing a long list, a database of work that was released during the 12 months. But there hadn't been a, before that a true record yeah. of the amount of stuff being produced and uh, the the shortlist as well. I think they're a very important aspect of the ledgers. Well, Gary, I, I've said it many times on mic and off mic in conversation that I think the long list for the ledgers is one of the most important things that comics in Australia has and has had for, for you know, the 10 years that the ledgers have been around. And I think it's supremely important that it continues and that we do have these long lists because I, I use it for me personally um and in regards to this show and to any of the comics stuff i've done before the podcast uh it was my almanac i used it i mean that was predominantly how i found new work yeah that's great well that's exactly what it was for uh and still is i mean i still have a hand in doing the the long list website i'm trying to formalize all those year year entries uh into a, a database an online database for people to tap into because uh, it's just so valuable. There's so much stuff out there that you just don't know about. And it's a it's a historical yeah, exactly document. Right. It, it is yeah. basically it is basically an archive of all the creators, whether they continued or not. You know, it's it's super important to have around and to keep going. Yeah, with with a database, uh, I, I get a, a a perverse little buzz when I do a search on a year. And you just put in uh, you know 1995, and the search results. Mm-hmm. You, you get to compare uh, what was running alongside each other at the time. Oh, yeah, those bug and stumps were coming out when that cyber swine was coming out, when that cyclone was coming out, when, and, you, and it puts the whole scene into perspective when you can see a, a search result sitting on your screen and you go, ah, oh, that takes me back, and, yes, I remember all of that stuff, or I don't know half of this stuff, you know. <laughs> and right. for, for someone doing research on Australian comics, uh, you can sort of uh, pin the 1990s as a very productive time. 
uh, comics story. And- I remember, yeah, yeah. I, I do remember that as 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 a, a fruitful era of of comics. I, to be honest, though, I, I still think that the long list these days they'd be a lot longer than the long list were in the nineties, weren't they? Uh, yeah, they were. Uh, the the scene has, uh, I wouldn't say exploded, but just uh, expanded year after year after year. And uh, there's a lot of it's hard to peg an Australian comic anymore these days. Uh, you know, if you remove the anthropomorphic uh, you know, platypus and the anthropomorphic kangaroos <laughs> and all the obviously yeah. visually Australian stuff. There's so much going on uh, in in the scene now that's getting published overseas internationally and locally and self-published and web comics and uh, Instagram comics, mini comics, zines. It's just, uh, yeah, the, the scene has actually uh, broadened. Its base has broadened so much which again is another reason why the long list is so important to try and yeah. keep this stuff, uh, you know, uh, keep a track of all this stuff. Because uh, it's getting a bit screwly to try and keep on top of everything. It's uh, it's expanding. <laughs> it's expanding sideways. I don't know how Bruce is going to do it on his own. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I will give a tip of the hat to Daniel Best, who's helped me out a lot with the long list, filling in the uh, the older material. I've been trying to work backwards with the ledger entries to make the database as complete as possible with the ledger years. But Daniel has gone from the, the old, you know, the 1979, 1980s, 1990s stuff. Oh, wow. He's trying to backfill the database with uh, a lot of these older entries. So, um, yeah, a tip of the hat to him. He's put in some, uh, a lot of hours. And so what made you create the ledgers? Was it just like, hey, we need, we need an awards system. And you just went and did it? Is that kind of how it worked? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> I, I felt that the scene was big enough. It was like a um, a schoolboy that was out of his shorts and into his long pants. It was like it was just mature enough to be able to take some criticism, but also to take some uh, to take a bit of spotlight on some of the the really good work that's being produced. That there was enough of it and coming out on a regular basis to support having a, uh, a set of six judges sit down and. Uh, argue and converse and talk in depth and with uh, skill and knowledge because even at that stage i was confident that there were people out there that could be good judges mm-hmm. it wasn't just uh, fans it was people who had um, you know university trained or had been a retailer for 10 years or had uh, been at that stage been doing podcasts for a while or was a a, a comics reporter that would do reviews for magazines and newspapers. Uh, so there was enough depth in the judging pool as well to be able to get a consensus on what is a good piece of work and what is an excellent piece of work. And uh, the prerequisite that uh, the first the first couple of years of the ledgers I had, you know, favourite title, favourite this, favourite that. But uh, when they were relaunched, I actually sat down with Tim and we nutted out a system where yep. it was a project based that uh, a project would be judged on its own merits and that seemed to make a lot more sense than uh, than any other way so that's how they proceeded that the judges would uh, talk about the projects and how successful they were on their own merits so you wouldn't get a 16 page a5 mini comic being compared to a 120 page graphic novel published by Marvel so it seemed logical, and it seems to have worked so far. So I hope that Bruce hangs on to that method of judging to a certain extent. There has been talk about him maybe expanding the categories in another way that might make it easier for the libraries to categorise and allocate purchases 
in the library system. Yeah, I think I think for me personally, and, and I spoke with Tim about this, understanding how the ledgers worked in terms of how they would award particular books throughout the entire time, I never actually understood how the bronze, silver and the gold designations work or how you would come about to give those particular titles to those books. Right. And and I think one thing that really confused me a lot of the times, even to this day, books that are predominantly made by international uh, creatives, but including them in if they've got an Australian component in there. And I think that's the one thing that really kind of... Yep. And, and it's not... And I'm not actually shitting on the artist or the writer or anybody that was involved in that book. It was just because the ledgers were supposed to be so Australian rather than saying an international category, they were included in with someone who did do a 12 page book. And and I think for me, that was confusing. And yeah. I know speaking yeah. to some yeah. other creators, they also found that a little bit perplexing. Well, uh, essentially when it came down to that, Tim and I decided to be inclusive and not exclusive. Yeah, right. If there was a question or a doubt about something, include it, don't exclude it. And I think that is uh, a good motto to have about life, really. As far, <laughs> yeah, as, yeah. as, far as the awards go, if there was any grey line about uh, whether it was uh, too Australian or not Australian enough, include it and let the judges work it out. Yeah, right. I wasn't just deferring a lot of these decisions to the judges, but there would be an awareness there that this is an American comic, the only Australian person involved in this team was the letterer, for example. Then the judges would find its own level, and the judges would say, well, we can't judge this book as a successful graphic novel if the only Australian component is the lettering. So four out of six judges will deem that it's not uh, applicable and then be sidelined. But if, uh, you know, something like a Tom Taylor written book is a whole different uh, balance to the yeah. contribution to the project. So include it and judge it on its merits accordingly. Yeah, that's, yeah well, that's what I mean. Like things, you know, explanations like this, I think, for, you know, were always uh, warranted from my perspective because I never understood why you would get, why you would get something that was printed overseas, but, you know, by this huge company that owns all these characters and no disparaging comments towards Tom because Tom's done an amazing job uh, with his career and his continuing career and he deserves all the accolades that he's gotten. But it was for me just centering around the ledgers and, you know, promoting Australian work and, and Australian creators. And it was, you know, seeing seeing some some kid from, you know, uh, the middle of New South Wales creating a 12-page book, labouring over it, was going up against, let's say, for instance, Tom Taylor. For me, I can't, I, I would scratch my head a yeah, little. Yeah, right. Well, well, they weren't up against each other. That was the thing. They were, they were fighting their own battles. They were like that. that uh, 12- yes, yes. Sorry. Let me, yeah, and yeah, thank yeah. you for the clarification. Yeah. And that, that's what I meant. That's, you know, and that was explained to me. But without the explanation from Tim, yeah. which was only right. you know, six months ago, I, I had questioned yeah. it so much over the years and just going, that's so strange. Why Another that? parallel or point worth making is that that young creator in Sydney who's slaving over his 16 page mini comic, Tom Taylor would be in Melbourne slaving over the latest Spider Man or Injustice comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just as hard. So, you know, the, the effort involved would be comparable, but the projects themselves shouldn't be compared. The, the, the aims and the output should be compared on its own merits. And, and that was the difference. Yeah. And, and like I said, that really came down to just it being actually explained to me just so I understood it for, for, for many years. And, and, and I'm, I wasn't the only one, which is why I brought it up with Tim, 
and he was gracious enough to explain the whole process and it made a lot of and, and that made a lot of sense now i'm not sure how bruce is going to do it i'm sure and, and i'm sure that bruce is going to do everything with the best of intentions yeah and 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 you know to and looking towards making sure that australians uh, or, or the the c triple a's uh the the preeminent awards and and they do promote australians irrespective of where they're working or printing their stuff well there was always going to be a um an issue uh that tim and i had discussed if we're retiring where are these things going to go? So that there was, what are we going to, what are we going to do? And so there was a period there of making a <laughs> making a short <laughs> list of people that we could approach uh, to take it on. And uh, luckily, Bruce was way at the top of the list anyway. Uh, but we kind of had our doubts that he'd have the time or the inclination. But he, he grabbed it with both hands because I, I think just in his head, I think it, it plays a part into what Bruce has in mind for uh, you know, one year, two year, five years down the track. And he just seemed like the, the standout contender to take the awards on and take him to the next level. So, you know, I wish him all the luck in the world as well. I, I agree. I couldn't believe he took it on. But then when you think about it, his PhD was finishing up and he was about to have a lot of, a lot of extra time on his hands. And a lot of his projects have been going, have been doing really well in international markets as well as here in Australia. But yeah, I'm I'm surprised that they, he's taken on himself. What's what's that uh, adage about? If you want something done, give it to a busy person. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I I uh, wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. But I just again, it's just uh, you know, and and I know from from knowing Bruce and speaking to Bruce on many occasions, he's that way inclined. Like he really does support the Australian industry, and and he really thinks that we've got the mustard here. Um, that that you know compares. Uh, you know that that runs, I suppose, quality-wise, alongside you know Europe and a lot of the stuff in the states as well. Yep, and that's the same mindset that Tim and I had all along uh, in those earlier years. Was the same mindset as well that there is a standard there now that uh, it's not going anywhere. It's only going to get better. Uh, that that the Australian scene has established itself. And, uh, you know, it's just onwards from there. Yeah. Well, Gary, I can tell you for, for certain, and I've said it many times, I'm sure I've said it on, on, on the podcast before, but, you know, I live in hope that uh, in my lifetime, I'll, I will actually see, you know, people reading comics on the train. And I don't mean people as in kids. I mean, people from all ages. You know, I want to I wanna basically see, you know, Australian content uh, on a grand scale. And, you know, I, hopefully I see it in my lifetime. That would be nice. Yeah, it's it's heading in that direction. I think that's uh, the chances of that happening are growing every single year. So before you know it, uh, it'll be there. You're listening to Graphic Nature. We'll return right after this short message. Hi, hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Graphic Nature on whatever podcast service you use. Uh, maybe even rate it while you're there. Uh, it'd be great if you could throw us some likes and or follows on Facebook, Instagram and uh, Twitter as well. For more info, check out the website, graphicnature.media. I appreciate you listening. Uh, thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the episode. How much? How much stuff are, are you reading these days in terms of comics? <laughs> um, uh, shouldn't say very little, actually. Very little. I, I'm, um, uh, the, the older I get, the more uh, picky I get, and I, I always look backwards. I'm reading a lot of old newspaper strip collections and artists from the or material from the 30s and 40s. So, yeah, I'm sort of going backwards in time. As far as modern comics are concerned, uh, of course, I'm naturally reading or keeping across a lot of the Australian stuff. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, don't necessarily dip into the American stuff that much anymore. Just been concentrating on producing my own material and uh, looking back. I imagine I imagine that takes up a lot of your time. <laughs> uh, yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm not. I never was the fastest artist in the world, and as I'm getting older, I'm getting slower. So uh, just have to stay focused and stay on task. But you know, when I do uh, you know read read comics? I tend to go backwards in time more so than uh, going to a, a new comic shop and seeing what's on the shelf. Uh, that that the the modern stuff doesn't really turn me on as much as the uh, the classics from the past. Well, I reckon Gary, I could hazard a guess that some of the stuff that you're reading now, in terms of you know stuff that's come out in the past, I don't imagine that many of the themes have changed very much. You know, in in respect to what the modern comics are doing these days, particularly the American stuff. You know, I, I find I find it's a similar thing. Uh, a lot of the stuff I look at on the shelves, uh, kind of, you know, unless it's done by publishers who are brand new, who are trying to cut their teeth and do something different. But for the most part, a lot of the major companies are just regurgitating storylines over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, going back and picking up something like a an old Roy Crane comic from the, the 30s, uh, these guys back then were doing stuff and inventing the form as they were producing the pages. So it's really educational to sort of deconstruct decades and decades of American comics and European comics and, and go back to the originals where these poor schleps were just trying to make a living, but they were also developing a language, yeah. you know, a comics language yeah. that, they, uh, that they were starting to expand, that, that everything that, that, is, that is modern comics now was being started back in the uh, you know, tw- late 20s, 30s and 40s. So that stuff's fascinating to see, and it's quite refreshing to see uh, that that stuff on the page and the experimental stuff that was happening on the page, particularly artists like Roy Crane, the the cartoony kind of artists that that mm-hmm. informs my work. There are the classicists, the realistic you know, Alex Raymond style artists, but there are the more cartoony stuff that really get, gets me going and 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 uh, informs my work these days. What uh, what part of of your work do you prefer, the the the, the writing or or the or the or the artistry, mm. drawing, which? Which disciplines the one you lean to or, or lean into, I should say? Yeah, different strokes for different folks, uh, different times of the day, I'd, I'd give a different answer. <laughs> I, I enjoy the, the writing and plotting of stories uh, and the penciling is fun uh, and the, the inking is fun as well. And then there's the graphic design side where at the end you put it all together and send it to the printers and it's uh, all these different hats you wear. And I suppose I'm lucky enough to get enjoyment out of all of them. I don't think that there's a aspect of it that I think is a chore, which I suppose I'm very lucky. So, uh, yeah, on any given day, if I know whether I'm writing something, I'll put the writer's hat on and I'll enjoy that aspect of it. And uh, then, the, then the drawing and the inking and the colouring and the lettering, yeah, they're all, they're all uh, positives, really, uh, except if there's a deadline. I don't <laughs> uh, operate well with deadlines anymore. Uh, if, it's, if it's not right, it's not going to get published. So deadlines can come and go. It doesn't really bother me anymore. Uh, I'm too old to do work throughs, so I'll just keep on working until the work is uh, at a standard that I'm happy with, and then it can get released. I suppose it also uh, helps that you're creating and, and publishing your own stuff. That would make a, a huge difference. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the editor, Gary, can uh, you know tell the artist, Gary, to hurry up. The artist, Gary, will just uh, give the middle finger to the editor, Gary, and uh, all is right with the world. <laughs> Ma, that'd be some fun meetings. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
you know, the intention is there to, to, to be faster and to get stuff out quickly, but uh, really quality wins out these days. It's it's really annoying when you send something to the printer and you know it's not there, you know yeah. it's not right, and it just bugs the hell out of you. So why not just invest that extra day, that extra week that might take to get it done right and it's permanently correct instead of annoyingly incorrect? Well, I think that was, that was the ethos of image publishing back in the early 90s, wasn't it? That's why they were taking six months to uh, produce comics. Yeah, well, maybe they had too much money floating around and they, <laughs> they, uh, they, they forgot what they were supposed to be doing, which was sitting on a drawing board and get, getting yeah. this stuff out. But uh, I think those guys back then also had the eye on, you know, Hollywood and TV series and toys mm-hmm. and animation mm-hmm. series and yep. they were distracted and easily distracted. But, uh, yeah, they forgot the main game, which was getting the comics out. Yeah, yeah, it really was, wasn't it? Man. Such a such a particular uh, particularly uh, strange period in comics, as I remember it. Yeah, see, money is the root of all evil, and in Australian comics, there's no money in it, so it's just a heavenly <laughs> occupation to get into. So you remove <laughs> money from the equation, and then it's just bliss all the way down the line. <laughs> if only that were completely true, Gary. If only that were completely true. Uh, and and so speaking of of self publishing and and wearing so many different hats. Uh, Adventure Illustrated. Yes, a return to my roots. Yeah, a, 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 an anthology series. <laughs> an anthology series. The very first book that uh, became Cyclone Comics back in the day was Adventure Illustrated, and it was a stillborn project. We did a a sample issue, uh, and there was a palette of about five hundred or so comics. They'd just come off the presses. And we had some early Flash Domingo in it. We had some Dark Nebula. And we had another little strip called Grit Grinder, which was a a comedy war strip. And uh, it had some blank pages put in it so that the publisher could go around and get advertising sales. So there was like a test promo Mm -hmm. issue. And so there was like three or four copies taken off the palette and uh, distributed to all of us going, wow, we've got our comic in our hands. It's amazing. It's amazing. But that weekend in Sydney, there were huge storms. And the roof that was storing the uh, in the warehouse that was storing the comic leaked really badly all over the pallet load of comics, and they were all pulled oh. except for the, a couple of you know the, like four or five issues that the creators had been given. So, oh my lord! Uh, you know, I I had a, com- a copy. Uh, Tad had a, had a copy. I think Glenn and Dave had one as well. The publisher may have had one, but they're the rare, rarest things out. But anyway, there was. <laughs> This was called Adventure Illustrated Number One. This predates Cyclone, and then seeing as how all the the stocks were destroyed, we had a chat with the the publisher then, which was a company called McCur Whitfield, which went out of business pretty quickly. But we decided to change names to Cyclone, and the Cyclone machine started to to run its course, and Adventure Illustrated was left behind um, until I thought, uh, what's a good title for a new comic that features my stuff? And I thought uh, Adventure Illustrated seemed very appropriate to uh, take it out of the uh, the cemetery and uh, you know bring it back to life again. So did you have to did you have to ask permission to the other creators or like to use the name? Uh, no, it was I was basically publishing head back then for the first iteration anyway. Oh, okay. So um, yeah, there was no problems with that. It was all cool. So so tell us like you decided uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring back some some shit and pump it out and I'm gonna ask my good friend Tim to help me out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, again, it was uh, really was history repeating itself. I wanted to do a title uh, of my own stuff. Uh, I wanted to be sort of like very similar in 
in field to the Love and Rockets, where the Hernandez brothers uh, are all doing their own little things and it all gets combined in an anthology and you get release on a regular basis and, uh, you know, you get your stuff out. So I was, I was wanting to do a Gary Challoner title, but I found that I couldn't really do the amount of pages that I wanted mm-hmm. to, you know, so I needed a, a, a third uh, a third wheel for the machine. And, uh, you know, I invited Tim to come on board and it was, and Michael as well as the writer of Greener Pastures. Yeah, let's not, let's they, not forget Michael. Uh, yeah, let's not forget Michael. Um, and they had started the ball, and I knew about this already, that they had started wanting to tell a graphic novel ending to the, the Greener Pastures storyline. Now, I've got to be careful I don't say too much uh, or let the cat out of the bag. But I knew- That's all right. If you, you can let me know, and I'll just edit it all out. <laughs> uh, okay. I'll just, in general terms, I knew of this Greener Pastures project. It's the big finale for the story that they wanted to tell with those characters. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, uh, why don't you run what you're going to do, whatever your plans were. And I don't think their plans had solidified beyond wanting to do the project and not knowing how they were going to release it. But Tim had started the ball rolling with getting the story with Michael sorted out and the the artwork was starting to be broken down into into pages. So uh, it seemed a natural fit for the Greener Pastures gang to uh, join with me to develop the Adventure Illustrator as an anthology title. So uh, that was all pretty sweet and easy to put together. So um, it's uh, pretty exciting to be doing the second issue. Uh, the first one uh, was received really, really well. So we're just continuing on. I do the Cyclone Force and Jackaroo stories up the front of the book. Uh, at the back of the book, I do the Red Kelso, which is a 1930s Doc Savage style pulp strip and uh, in the middle is the the greener pastures material and i think it's a really nice uh, combination and 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 package for a reader i think greener pastures uh, and tim's artwork complements uh my stuff quite nicely so that there's a visual you know comfort there from from strip to strip how long has it been since you've revisited these the characters you're working on for adventure Mm -hmm. let's see the last time i did a uh jackaroo story uh well uh, gee um Flash Domingo, uh, yeah, I don't know, probably 10, 15 years. How does it feel to be revisiting a lot of these characters now? Oh, uh, absolutely amazing. Again, I'm trying to stay focused because all I'm picking up the storyline uh, where it was left off so many years ago, and this has given me an opportunity to finish things off and uh, do all these stories and new stories as well that I've always wanted to do, and the floodgates have opened up for uh, new stories as well. So... Uh, it's it's pretty exciting. I'm having a blast. I just I wish I was a bit faster, but uh, <laughs> you know, having having a blast. So so um, we'll slowly get to uh, all the stories that I want to tell, and just stay focused. And hopefully there'll be Tim and I are hoping to get uh, a quarterly regularity happening. So that'll be pretty exciting as well. well. That's great. And when you say when you say new stories, will that include new characters, or are they just new stories with the current spate of characters you got? Uh, a bit of both. The Cyclone Force characters are my newer adventure characters. Uh, <laughs> when I say newer, they're, they're just maybe 10 years, 15 years old. Uh, but it's also uh, the, the main narrative drive still features Flush Domingo and the Jackaroo characters and how their character arc is resolved, resolved as far as Flash Domingo is concerned and pushed forward as far as the Jackaroo is concerned. Red Kelso, he that, that whole universe plays into 
the Jackaroo timeline as well. They're all connected. So the, the Red Kelso world, which is in the, the 30s and 40s, actually flows into the Jackaroo timeline as well. So it all plays into that universe world building as well. I, I hope you have designs on putting this together in in some sort of graphic novel collection. Yeah, the, the collections are on the uh, part of the plan. So, and it's same with greener pastures. If I can talk Tim and Michael into it, I'd love to be able to uh, collect that material together. Well, I, I offered to scan all their original artwork and I, they still haven't sent it to me. So, uh, well, <laughs> I, I, listened, I listened to that show with you and Tim and based on that conversation, I got in touch with him and said, Hey, whenever you want to collect the greener pastures stuff, the early issues, you know, like I'm, I'll happily put it under the cyclone imprint and put it out there. And it's, um, you know, really a, a, just a matter of, as you and he discussed, getting the artwork scanned and the, the production side of things all together. So we'll see what happens. I, 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 I think I even off mic, I might have offered to uh, to fund it. I can't remember. But like even Mark Sexton and John Petropoulos's uh, Bug and Stump, uh, you know, those two, they need, to, they need to put that stuff in a collection, it, you know. I understand that they've got some issues with, oh, they might have some issues with uh, the legal uh, representations of some of the characters that they drew in Bug and Stump. But at the same time, I still think it's important that, you know, that that exists in some sort of collection. Yeah, I think you you are very right that there are strips that need to be um, collected. I know uh, Dylan Naylor has done some collections of his Dar and Dill. Dar and Dill, yeah, I've got one of them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which uh, that more of that kind of stuff, uh, there needs to be some sort of preservation of yeah. that material. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and there's, uh, there's uh, you know, like dozens of strips you could nominate that, that would be worthy in collection form. So... Um, hopefully that library of stuff will uh, start to happen as well. Uh, but it needs that that interest, that undercurrent of interest and awareness of uh, from new readers as to uh, what was going on in the 90s and the, the 2000s and even earlier. So yeah, there are plans to Great. do a, a single collection of the early Flash Domingo and Jackaroo material. And uh, this new stuff is planned to be released in volumes and collections as well. But uh, yeah, uh, greener pastures trade would be fantastic. Let alone collecting this new material that they're producing now, because Tim's art has just become absolutely fantastic. Leaps and bounds. His his growth is amazing. So it's mm -hmm. it's great giving him the opportunity to to get published on a regular basis and seeing all that you know reach fruition. That's brilliant. Well, you know, like I said to him, you know, I think it's I think it's great and uh, that that it's continuing and. Um... Is it a Kickstarter? How are you guys funding it? Uh, yeah, Kickstarter. You know, hopefully there will not be a need for every single issue to be Kickstarted going down the, the track. Actually, Gary, with with that, I mean, considering that you've mentioned now a couple of times that you, you you know not only would you like to get it right, but you're not necessarily in a rush. Have you thought about maybe even looking at some of the other creatives out there that may or may not want to help and to like maybe just you know get in and do some of the work for you? It has crossed my mind, but the the desire was, the pitch that I gave myself was, wouldn't it be good, Gary, to have your own little Love and Rockets comic where you could have uh, an anthology of, of your stuff? And I know that including the Greener Pastures material kind of breaks that concept down, but I'm still pretty adamant on wanting to mm -hmm. to do my own stuff while I can. As the years go by and my, my hand gets a bit mm -hmm. a little bit too shaky and stuff like that, I probably will flop over just to writing material. 
Oh, wow. I'm in the process of writing a Jackaroo novelette at the moment, actually. And so I'm going to see, see how that goes. So that's that's in the future, though, the option of just becoming a writer and getting other artists to come on board. But for the time being, while I can, um, you know, I'd just like to be able to sit down and, and draw the, the stories as I can so that they're mine and I can say, yep, job done, get it out there and uh, claim it for your, for your own. But uh, down the track, certainly there's uh, always options there for just writing Jackaroo adventures and getting other artists to draw it. But uh, I don't think I'm at that stage just yet. And, and just going back uh, a little on the Kickstarter, have have you thought about possibly getting some sort of funding, whether it be through advertising or, or anything like that, to uh, to help fund the books rather than just, just relying on Kickstarter? Mm, yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, it's beyond my uh, – it's, it's – Beyond my skill set, really. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Uh, but yeah, ha- having funding, uh, I've never applied for a grant or any kind of government assistance or anything like that. And that's an option that I'd like to be able to follow up if I had time to do it. Uh, but yeah, if anyone's out there who's <laughs> inclined on w- wanting to become financial backer of a publishing venture, uh, just get in touch. But on the short term, we're trying to keep it fairly low key and under our own auspices and control. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to get. Oh, I meant, uh, I meant just you know, even like you know, retail stores or, you know, uh, local businesses or something. You know, uh, I suppose this issue was, little... was very generously supported by King's Comics. They've, they've, oh wow, they've okay. been great supporters of my career over the years, and and Tim's to a certain extent as well, or the the Greener Pastures gang. And so yeah, the first issue Kings was uh, there was an ad on the back cover for for Kings, and they supported the the Kickstarter oh, wow. enormously well, and and bought their own stocks of the comic as well. So, and I'm sure they'll more than likely do it again for the second issue once they know that the Kickstarter is launching. But yeah, so that has happened in the past, uh, and you know other retailers over the years through Cyclone have, have helped as well. So the, it does happen, but. You know these days, these COVID days when yeah. time uh, and money is is so questionable, um, you can't really rely on that stuff. So I'm just hoping that the Kickstarter bubble doesn't burst because there's a lot of Australian projects that uh, you know use <laughs> there is the crowdfunding <laughs> pathway, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I just don't know how long it can sustain itself. So yeah, I've asked I've asked the the same question many times. I just don't you know it's. You know, particularly if someone's doing, uh, you know, a long form or doing, you know, five, six or ten issue miniseries, well, how many people are really going to throw money at those sorts of kind of campaigns? Yeah, exactly um, right. And yeah. and sight unseen, you know, comics yep. are usually something that you know you you know a visceral you know experience. I want to flip through it. I want to look at it. I want to I want to see what the uh, what the paper feels like. I'm going to see what the images look like on the paper. Exactly. So I, yeah. I, I always find. Um, you know, I, and don't get me wrong, I have supported comics in, on Kickstarter in the past, but I'm I'm actually reticent, unfortunately, I suppose. And, and as you alluded to, the comics as well, particularly if you're telling a continuing story, even American comics has the you know the first yeah. issue big, the big numbers happen, then there's a huge dip for issue number two, and a smaller dip for three and four and five, and it's hard to maintain yeah. those those na- sales and numbers, particularly if you're telling a continuing story. But, uh, you know, the Kickstarter model allows you to pitch issue two and still have – you can buy issue one at the same time and you can continue that on uh, as, a, as an option in your Kickstarter campaign. But, uh, you know, the nature of it is, yeah, you've got to keep your readership interested from issue to issue and it's such a hard thing. That's just the nature of the beast. 
So that's weird. Yeah, and and particularly in particularly for Australian comics too. I mean, I know that whenever I've gone to launches, you know, that the creator might not have enough money to print one and two, so they only bring two because that's the new issue. And then for someone who's coming yeah, along who's well, never read number one, I'm not going to buy number two because yeah. I haven't read the story from number one. So it makes it a little bit yeah, too hard, yeah. um, which is a shame. Well, that's why I'm yeah I'm trusting on the the Love and Rockets method. Mm-hmm. Because I know for a fact that people pick up any issue of Love and Rockets for the quality of the art and story, even if there's a continuing story in there. So at the end of the day, quality has to win out you know, to be able to pick up an issue seven of Adventure Illustrated. It might be halfway through a story, but the yeah. the yeah. artwork is still there that wows you enough to go, yeah, I'll pick this up because look at this, this this artwork is shit hot or whatever. So um, th- that's that's what I'm banking on. Um, so we'll see what happens. And, and have you ever entertained uh, possibly doing web comics, as you alluded to with uh, with Will uh, back back in the day? Uh, well, you know, I'm doing a um, a story now for Morton Stone, which has been drawn by Ryan Vella, and that's uh, being posted on the Morton Stone website. Oh, wow, cool! So that's uh, basically being published a page a week, approximately. Uh, it's only a short story, but it will. Uh, the other stories I've got done are all going to be put into a Morton Stone special. So, yeah, I am still doing the old webcomics thing. Uh, so it hasn't hasn't gone sideways. It's still a good way of, of, of marketing and keeping your characters alive without having to go to a printer's. So, yeah, still doing that. And, and speaking of bridging the uh, digital and analog divide, are you are you still are you still pencil and pencil and ink on Bristol, or are you uh, have you made the transition over to uh, digital means? Yeah, I'm still old school. I'm still uh, on Bristol board and pen and ink and uh, pencils. Yeah, um, I haven't invested in a Wacom or a Cintiq or anything like that. Yeah, I don't think I will now. Uh, it's uh, I'm too old, too late. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll bung the old line work on the scanner and I'll colour it and letter it online, but that's about the extent of it. Wow, where do you put all those pages? Oh, uh, well, you know, <laughs> I have one or two people that continually, uh, you know, send me messages asking whether they can take <laughs> stuff off my hands. So, um, But, yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of my Jackaroo stuff still sitting here and there's a few pages have gone off to people as gifts over the years, but uh, my side projects have uh, all gone to, to collectors and um, eventually the Jackaroo stuff will all, all go to, to people as well. But, uh, yeah, storage is a thing. Oh, yeah, very much so, very much so. I suppose anyone that uh, reads comics or, or collects, I suppose, um, whether you're on your end or on my end, you know, you still need storage space. Yes, and uh, if you're married or have significant others, uh, you have to consider, consider the spare room or consider the garage yeah, yeah. Or, or make sure everything's watertight and doesn't get mouldy. It's tough when you've got no room and, you, and uh, you know, you're... you're collection is growing uh, <laughs> although albeit these days it's it's growing a lot a lot slower than it used to well that's the other thing as well I, I when you asked me before about what comics i read now i do tap into a couple of series but i don't buy them on paper i buy them digitally and read them on my ipad so um you know there are a, a couple of things like um, moonshine i read which is the image comic about the depression era mm-hmm. uh, gangster werewolf story yeah by brian azzarello and um... yeah, yeah yeah so i'm quite enjoying that um and there's one or two other you know little special things that i get when it, when it piques my interest that i'll buy it digitally and, and have a read on the ipad instead of uh tracking down uh, the print version but i am um i have just recently bought the uh, talking of love and rockets 
the uh, Jaime Hernandez's uh, wrestling sketchbook. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I, I was I looked at that and I thought, well, that'd be nice to own, but I don't know if I can justify buying that, considering that I've got all the Love and Rockets uh, collections they brought out well, about ten years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, special event things like Barry Windsor Smith's Monster I got recently as well for his big three hundred page graphic novel that he released through Fantagraphics. Uh, I got that. So uh, I treat myself every now and then, but regular purchases are, uh, you know, very slim. Yeah, yeah, I understand, I understand. And, you know, and like I've mentioned, it, it, it really does feel like the same things are getting published and printed over and over and over again, which is a little bit disappointing. But on the, on the other side of that, it's, it's what's afforded me this lovely uh, introduction to what, a lot of Australian creators are doing, whether it be a zine or, or, you know, whether it be short, small format or stuff like what, you know, Pat Grant and Chris Gooch are doing, you know, with their larger format stuff. Yeah, you, you certainly can't say that there isn't um, uh, a plethora of styles and content happening in this country. No, no, and I think no. that uh, almost defines what an Australian comic is, is the, 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 the difference that you can't really peg it anymore. Uh, you used to be able to with, uh, you know, back in the day with Air Hawk and the Flying Doctor and all those adventure strips back in the day, uh, in the you know 50s and 60s and 70s. But as the 21st century has happened, it's really hard to quantify what an Australian comic is. Uh, but there's such a variety of stuff out there now, and I think that's the strength of the uh, the scene at the moment is its diversity. Yeah, and and it's only growing. And sadly, we are talking about uh, the period in time of you know we're currently going through a pandemic, and that's kind of uh, put the brakes on a lot of stuff. But but pre pre COVID, uh, I mean, it, it was I remember going. There's a couple of convention, independent conventions down here in in Melbourne, and year on year they were getting you know bigger and bigger and there were more and more different creators and there was some really novel stuff coming out of out yep. of uh, some of the crew that were exhibiting so uh, hopefully a lot of them have been just continually pumping out stuff um, yep. whether it be through their own little channels and and hopefully one day when we get back into conventions you know there'll be like this plethora of of creators just pushing all their wares it, uh, I, I am I am eagerly awaiting and anticipating looking looking at all this new material that will be hopefully uh, coming out whenever these conventions start up again. Yeah, and it'd be good to have some true comic book conventions too, not so much these big pop culture monsters that uh, the comic section becomes a bit, um, you know, set to one side. I think it'd be great to have... <laughs> the, like, the ugly sister. Yeah, it'd Just, be great to yeah. have across a calendar year, maybe, you know, four or so... Uh, comic-based, tr really, truly comic-based conventions that would showcase all this work in the real world. Well, I think, I think you know, there were there was, I know that here in Melbourne we had Homecut Comics, which was yeah. put on by the city of Darabin, and there was also the, the Indie Comic Con, Mel, Indie Indie Comic Con, yeah. Comic Con. Um, and both of those festivals, uh, you know, you couldn't actually get anything flashy there. Everything was just homegrown. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, people publishing out of uh, Rizzo Print, or yep. you know, publishing from you know, publishing office works, or you know, whatever, whatever they could, you know, or even you know, blueprinting or Jeff's printing, you know, just yeah. you know, need anyone more, local and yeah, need more of that. More like the uh, Perth Comic Arts Festival as well. When you want to get a little bit more highbrow, you can go to those kind of venues, university-based kind of functions and conventions as well. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the graphics festival at the Opera House was a great thing when it was uh, happening as well. So, yeah, we just need a cross-section of comics-based stuff because, you know, we've got our long pants on now. We can do it. We're, <laughs> you know, 
Well, I, 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 shorts anymore. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't see why it can't happen. I'm, I'm sure that Melbourne isn't the only place that they that we have these sorts of conventions, and I'm, you know, hopefully, that more of them spring up all, all around Australia, and it would actually be nice to see, you know, creators from different states. Um, yes. Yeah. Come, come, you know, do do a tour. Basically, go around and go. Okay, well, in the first quarter, I'm going to go to WA. In the next quarter, I'm going to go to the NT, and you know, and it would be so. It would be so good to have that sort of community running around the country, and yep. and, and maybe even have, to have these these artists sponsored, perhaps, so they can do a national tour appropriately. You know, if not a comic convention venue, but bookstore signings and comic shop signings, and actually have a, a funded circuit that um, you know, artists and creators can become a part of. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, I might even start creating if that was the case. <laughs> hey, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> oh, no, no. I think those days are gone, Gary. Who's got time? Oh, uh, come on. You're never too, never too old. <laughs> get, get amongst it. Oh, yeah. We'll see what my wife has to say about it. Uh, <laughs> but uh yeah yeah i i agree i agree i i actually and like i said i can't wait can't wait for for all that stuff to come back and and to see what people are doing yeah it's uh, gonna be pretty exciting it will um the 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 crap will settle and there will be a new norm absolutely and uh and usually the, the comic book industry has always flourished when there's you know a depression or times are tough over the the 20th century mm-hmm. so maybe this whole thing will there'll be a positive side to the, the creative projects that come out the other end of it. I, I agree. And, and if there's one thing that I'm sure of Gary, it's that comic books are here to stay. Oh yeah. And, um, and they will, they will keep growing as they have. And uh, by some way, shape or form, the next generation will beget the next generation and it will just become what I've always hoped it would be. Because I always knew there was the potential for it yep. to be, to, you know, to basically sit there amongst every other piece of, of art uh, and 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 be regarded as such. Yes, yeah, yeah. And when you get comic artists that will be able to, um, you know, enter their artwork into the Archibald Prize, like a comic book piece of art, a, a portrait of someone famous drawn in a comic book style, winning something like the Archibald, you know, cracking down all those barriers and going through that glass ceiling of what is accepted as comic art in this country, that'd be a great thing to see as well. That's a great um, idea. I've never thought of that. Yeah. Oh. Mm. I've thought about entering uh, several times, but it's a bit daunting. But you know, there'll be other artists that that won't see it as uh, scary at all, and they'll just they'll they'll submit, they'll they'll break down that barrier, and uh, you know, we'll we'll see someone, um, you know, same same with submitting uh, you know creative works to you know the Booker Prize and all these literature prizes. Mm-hmm. You know, that that'll start that barrier will start breaking down over time as well and you'll start getting graphic novels. It already is starting on a world stage. Graphic yeah. novels winning uh literary prizes and breaking down barriers that way as well. I want to see I want to see them actually create a, a similar stature of award but for comics named in comics and only comics. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand that, you know, most comic creators and, and comic fans would prefer some sort of inclusivity into the broader community of comics. But I still think, you know, you, you have all these quote unquote uh, literary awards and I suppose that leads into thoughts of 
the way that people actually view comics and you know do we want it to be separate or do we want it to be a part of literature you know how should it be defined does it need to be defined and, and yeah they're, they're hard questions they, yeah they really know, are and the europeans have a different sensibility and attitude about graphic novels and comics compared to the american market which are headed up by the eisner awards and the Australian market that is uh, headed up by the ledgers, whatever that means. But, you know, different cultures, because the Australian market is different to the American market. Yeah, yeah very much so. There. But the, the European and the Japanese and the Korean and the Indian, the comic book markets are all different and have their strengths and weaknesses. Mm. Well, I, I for one, uh, you know, like I said, uh, it would be uh, – I... Just, yeah, I've got nothing to say other than what I've already said, Gary. It's just, I, I love them so much. I love them the bits. And um, I love your I've... enthusiasm. <laughs> well, you know what? If, if I had all the money in the world, Gary, I would create something that would uh, perpetually promote comics and the, the medium and the art form itself because it can do anything. It actually oh. can do anything. Yep, it can. And and that's why I think it's such a potent form of, of art and, and literature. Yep, totally agree there. Uh, and the variety of work coming out from this country is only a good portent of things to come. So Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. It's, just, it's a, a question of how patient are you really? Uh, you can, you know, <laughs> someone in your position, you know, do you wait five years for something to happen or do you to become proactive now and do something about it? Well, that's really the question, isn't it, Gary? Because at the moment, like I'm doing this podcast and, and every time I speak to someone new, I come up with a different idea, but it's like, well, how do I, how do I make this idea coalesce? Yeah, sure. I can do this for the next 10 years and I'm happy to do that. But again, like many creators out there, it doesn't pay the bills. And mm -hmm. so that's where the trade-off is. It gets really hard to go, well... Um, I would love to be able to interview more people and pump out, you know, more content. Yeah, you know, you're, you're which playing is... your part and it, it just is maintaining a momentum. Tim and I talk about this a lot, particularly recently, about maintaining a momentum and that in and itself, a uh, presence and a momentum. Uh, and it counts for something. You know, the, the, the shows that you've done up until now, given another five years, you'll have X amount of more shows and more profile. Same with publishing, you know, like yeah. draw a page, draw two pages, draw 20 pages, draw 100 pages. It all makes a difference and it's all heading in the right direction. Absolutely. Well, Gary, thank you so much. Totally fine. It's been a, a great pleasure and I'll do it again anytime. I'm going to take you up on that. Okay. Yeah, anytime. Awesome. Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks a lot for your time. It's been a blast. I've really enjoyed myself. Thanks so much, Gary. Right, yeah. Talk, talk soon. Absolutely. Bye. Bye, Gary. That's the end of this episode of Graphic Nature. Thanks for listening. If you could please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use, it'd be greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And for more information about the show, visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing into your web browser or search engine, graphicnature.media. Uh, until next time, enjoy the comics you read and read the comics you enjoy. Credits! Written, produced, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Editing and audio production, Matthew Jones. Additional editing, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation, Archie Cuthbertson, Dan Moore. Credits announcer, Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham vs. Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature, the podcast.